Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. James Bijan, who is usually with us on the podcast, is not able to make it. He's uh, feeling poorly. Please keep him in your prayers as he uh, struggles with various uh, longer-term health problems. We're going to miss him, and uh, we wish him the best and hope he'll be back with us very soon. We are midway through a series in the book of Deuteronomy. We've covered the first 12 plus chapters. The last time we were in chapter 13 and we ended before we could finish that chapter. So we're going to get go back and pick up the end of chapter 13 and then move into chapter 14 as time permits. But chapter 13 is part of the second word section of Deuteronomy. As we've said repeatedly, the, the central chunk of Deuteronomy from about chapter 6 to chapter 26, that's organized according to the 10 words and uh, we have expansions of the Ten Words beyond just the, the specific things that are said in the Ten Commandments. And so the, the second word section includes chapter 12, which is about the location of worship and the location of sacrifice. That's a, a crux of the interpretation of, of Deuteronomy, as we talked about, uh, both for critical scholars and also just in understanding the book generally. Uh, because it's uh, that's the chapter where the Lord says he's going to choose a single place uh, once Israel is in the land, uh, and that will be the place where, bring, where they will bring their tithes and their offerings. That's where they'll have all their festivals, and that means that everything else is kind of reordered. Their whole liturgical life is kind of reordered around the fact that they're going to have one central sanctuary, one place that the Lord chooses, and that place is going to be distant from uh, where Israelites live, and so there's going to be uh, that phenomenon of distance is going to change the way that uh, things operate. Chapter 13 is also part of the second word section. Here, the focus is not on the place of worship, but it's on enticements to false worship. Obviously, that includes uh, concerns of the first word. The first word prohibits Israel and us from worshiping any God other than the God of the Exodus, other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who raised Jesus from the dead. So the chapter 13 is focused on that because it's about enticements to idolatry. But more specifically, it's focused on what James Orton calls mediators, mediators of worship. So it's about prophets who are enticing Israel away from the worship of Yahweh, family members who might entice Israel, Israelites away from the worship of Yahweh. And then the section that we want to look at is the last section, which begins at 1312, which is talking about entire cities of Israel that are enticed away by sons of Baal in order to worship false gods and devote themselves to false gods. One of the things that we pointed out at the beginning of the uh, discussion of chapter 13 in the last episode is the fact that this is this is a sign that the work of the conquest is not finished once for all once Israel moves into the land. Joshua leads the people into the land. They have the goal of eliminating and eradicating all false worship all altars and pillars and shrines, Asherah poles, everything that is associated with Canaanite worship, they're supposed to eliminate and purge that from the land. And then Israel is supposed to establish the Lord's worship in the land. It's a land that's purged of idolatry and then becomes Yahweh's holy land by Yahweh's presence in his house, in the place that he chooses. That's that's the intention of the conquest. But that conquest isn't over once and for all because Israel can always slip back into idolatry, and this is dealing with cases where that happens. Uh, and the Lord's instruction to Israel is uh, that these enticements to idolatry have to be dealt with very severely. If there's a false prophet, he has to be put to death. If there's a brother, uh, if there's a son or daughter, if uh, your wife entices you to idolatry, then they too have to be put to death. They have to be, uh, the, those wicked people have to be purged from among Israel and then if an entire city defects from Yahweh and serves other God, then that entire city has to be eliminated and destroyed. Uh, they become they begin to uh, act like Canaanites, they worship like Canaanites. And so their entire city comes under the ban, under the under the harem. And uh, like Jericho and other cities during the conquest, uh, they're put to the torch and their uh, inhabitants are, are slaughtered uh, and only certain Certain things are reserved from the fire. Actually, it's the it's the animals, it's the cattle and the animals and all the booty. Everything is destroyed in this case. Sorry, nothing is nothing is uh, nothing survives this. So they act like Canaanites. They become like a Jericho, and so they're treated like Jericho and completely destroyed. 
Uh, one thing that I think we'd mentioned earlier, talking about this chapter 13 in general, is that this is a, although it's obviously referring to Israel's kind of community discipline under the old covenant, uh, it applies in the new covenant because there are still rules about community discipline. And Paul quotes the repeated phrase, you shall purge the wicked man from among you. That's used in, cha- in verse five of chapter 13. That's used in first Corinthians where Paul's talking about church discipline. So the application of church discipline is, uh, is affecting the same uh, community discipline and, and uh, ma- ma- maintaining the holiness of the community in the same way that these rules of uh, chapter of Deuteronomy 13 do. And that could also apply to the last part of chapter 13, where it talks about entire cities. There may be times, there are times in churches who were entire congregations of the church or entire sectors of the church are deemed to be heretical, teaching false a false gospel, worshiping a false god, and they have to be purged from the church. That, of course, historically has gotten all tangled up with all kinds of political actions, but we have examples of that, for example, in the in the uh, disputes over Arianism, uh, Arianism was a pretty large movement within the early church. But after the Nicene Council and after the Council of Constantinople, those were deemed heretical, and so they were uh, placed under a discipline of the church. We have a similar kind of thing going on in North Africa during the time of Augustine and before Augustine with the Donatists. So there might be entire sectors of the church that would be treated as Canaanites and, and kind of put under the ban and eliminated from the fellowship of the church. Of course, in our current disarray, that's that's a very difficult, if not impossible, thing to do because of the the the, uh, the uh, existing divisions uh, among the among the churches. But that's the portrait that Deuteronomy gives us: that it's not only individuals who are being disciplined. You might have entire communities that are uh, treated as synagogues of Satan and are and are purged from the communion of Christ. One of the differences here with the cities is that. With uh, domestic cases, uh, since you know everybody involved and there's some intimacy with your family members or your kin, it's pretty obvious when this happens. But in the case of cities, it requires a judicial process. So in verse 14, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently and behold, if it is true. And so um, in, in a public setting like this, there has to be some sort of um, inquiry into it uh, before you just go off and and destroy the city. The other thing here is, uh, you know, the the city is being basically a Canaanite turned into a Canaanite city. So the Kareem warfare, the Kareem judgment, is executed against an Israelite city, which is fascinating because just being in the land and being a settlement uh, in the promised land doesn't guarantee that you're not going to come under divine judgment. This is not some sort of blanket favoritism of all Israelites who are living in the land that somehow they get a pass. They don't get a pass. Uh, God's wrath can burn against them just as it did against the Canaanites. And then the last thing I, I notice here in this section is that uh, all of the cattle uh, and all of the um, inhabitants and everything of economic value it appears like is going to be put into the town square and destroyed, which means that whoever executes this judgment against the city, whether it's a neighboring city or a, a couple of neighboring cities, however it works, there's no economic benefit for those who execute this judgment against the city. This is uh, all about God's wrath and not about uh, acquiring booty so that anyone, any city who thinks it's going to conquer another city and and gain the wealth of that city by accusing them of apostasy, well, they're going to have to accuse them of something else. There's got to be some other issue because if it is about idolatry, then there's nothing left for them to take away. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, and it goes back to something we talked about in the last episode where I, I think we brought up the phenomenon of witchcraft accusations that are brought in tribal cultures and witchcraft accusations being a means of 
you know, taking vengeance on somebody who's offended you. It's a, it's a weapon of violence against somebody else. You're using the community rules to, to uh, go after somebody who's an enemy. And the, the requirement that there's some kind of investigation, yeah, puts a break on that. And, and very, very importantly that uh, uh, you can't, if you, you can't accuse somebody of idolatry or city of idolatry and just move in and uh, just take their stuff because, uh, because they've, they've been treated as idolaters. The investigation too, a, a couple of examples we have of that, not exactly the same scenario, but I think it, it illustrates the kind of the kind of procedural rules that you have in ancient Israel. I think of the altar that was built in the Transjordan at the end of Joshua. The Transjordanian tribe set up this altar, uh, and there's not supposed to be another altar because the the uh, tabernacle has been placed at Shiloh, and the altar, the bronze altar, is there. That's where sacrifice is supposed to take place, and so Joshua that is ready to go to war against the Transjordanian tribes because they've seemed to have defected from the Lord. But uh, instead of just going off half, half cocked and attacking the Transjordanian tribes, they investigate uh, and find out that the intention was never to set up another altar for sacrifice, but it's just a memorial altar on the Transjordan to, to actually link the Transjordanian tribes to the tribes on the other side of the Jordan. So that's a case where the investigation actually proves that there's not a defection from the Lord. So it's a good thing they did investigate the other example that I think of is at the end of Judges. Again, not exactly the same case, but you have the city of Gibeah that is uh, that becomes basically a Sodom. The other tribes go to uh, Benjamin, which is the territory, the tribal territory around Gibeah, and ask the Benjamites to give up the men of Gibeah who have done this. And instead of doing that, they batten down the hatches and defend the men of Gibeah. And in that case, you do have the rest of the tribes going to war. It's not a case of idolatry. But it's a case of uh, scandalous evil, sodomite uh, level, Sodom level evil that Israel needs to purge from the land. Uh, and but the the first approach is to try to just get the perpetrators. You, uh, the they want to get the men who actually committed the crime. They don't go immediately to war against the Benjamites. So th- those are a couple of cases where that investigative element is uh, is important. One thing I wanted to highlight: um, Vern Poitras in his book on the Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses. Uh, has cited this passage, and I think Jim Jordan cites it also uh, as an example of the complication of judicial and ceremonial laws in in the in the Torah. It's a, it's an argument against the traditional idea that you can cleanly distinguish between ceremonial and judicial and moral laws. Uh, ceremonial laws are eliminated by the coming of Christ. Ju- judicial laws may have some kind of the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it has some kind of general equity. And the moral laws are permanent, uh, summarized in the ten words. And this has been uh, Poitras, I think, points to this passage as an example of a place where you don't have that. Those can't be cleanly disentangled; they're all mixed up together in the in the Israelite system. And specifically, what they pointed to is verse sixteen. Jeff has already mentioned this. You gather all the booty in the middle of the open square, burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh your God. It shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. And that phrasing of uh, the booty of the city as a whole burnt offering, Jordan has argued that that's a reference to, it, it implies that uh, that that fire has to be lit from the altar. The altar fire is the only place where you can offer whole burnt offerings. And uh, so this is, a, in a sense, a ceremonial fire, but it's obviously a judicial action because they're destroying an entire city's population and all their animals and all their stuff. I want to qualify that a little bit because the terminology used in verse 16 is not exactly that of a whole burnt offering or an ascension offering. Um, this, the, the term for ascension offering in Leviticus is olah, an offering that goes up. It's an ascent. That's not the term used here. It's kalil, uh, which is probably built on kal, which means all or whole. And kalil actually does mean something like a whole a whole offering, a a conflagration, but it's not the it's not the term that's used for the ascension offering. Uh, and besides that, the word for burn uh, in verse sixteen, this sounds like it's a highly technical thing, but I think it's important. The word for burn here is saraf, um, and in the Levitical system, that's never the word used for the altar fire. The animals that are placed on the altar are turned to smoke. The verb is the verbal form is hikt here, and that's a different different root from saraf. The only place where saraf is used to describe burning in the Levitical system is when you have uh, some flesh that's left over from an offering that needs to be burned outside the camp. That's burned 
with fire, seraph is used there, but everything put on the altar is picked here. So it, it may be the case that this off, this this fire is is uh, lit by fire that comes from the altar. That may be an implied. So that would still make a point about the uh, the entanglement of judicial and ceremonial. But there is still a distancing. This the this is a punishment against the city, and the punishment is not described in terms that are used for a whole burnt offering or a, or an ascension offering. It's slightly different terms, and and terms that typically describe the seraph burning in Leviticus is more one of disposal. You're disposing of something that's been, that's not been offered. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's more of an idea of a destructive fire rather than a transforming fire. So uh, that, I think that's the, the terminological details, but I think they're important for understanding some of the complexities of what, what's happening there. The material of this section seems to continue the exposition of the second commandment, um, not creating um, false images. And the second commandment continues the logic of the first commandment. It's um, the practice of worship and the first relating to the exclusive proper object of worship. And within this section, the connection between the commandments and the material that expounds it, that expounds them is not so clear at certain points. At this juncture, we might wonder how the false city, for instance, relates to the second commandment. Um, do you have any thoughts on this? One thing to note, I think here, um, with regard to the second commandment and liturgical idolatry being adultery, um, is that I notice here in chapter 13, in verse 4, um, you shall walk after the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, fear him, keep his commandments, obey his voice, you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Uh, Dabach is the noun there. Interestingly, it ends, the chapter ends with uh, this devoted things, none of it sticking to your hands, Dabach. So you have Dabach in the beginning, Dabach at the end having to do with clinging. That's the same word used in Genesis 2.24. So I know we've been talking about Deuteronomy presenting the Israelites as Yahweh's sons, and that's certainly true, but they're also his his, uh, his wife. And um, the clinging to Yahweh, your husband, is extremely important, obviously, uh, and would be compromised if you started uh, uh, clinging to either these idols or the idolatrous uh, leftovers from the the judgment here. So I'm wondering if, and of course, everywhere in Scripture, uh, liturgical idolatry is presented as adultery, as unfaithfulness, as marital unfaithfulness to Yahweh, and that seems to be some sort of connection here as well. Yeah, and I think as as I said at the beginning, that what uh, Jordan does with this is to highlight the fact that. You're talking about mediators of worship in each in each of these three cases. So it's not just that you have people who are going to serve other gods at the beginning of the chapter. It's people are going to serve other gods because you have a prophet who's taking a, taking this kind of priestly role of leading people into worship of false gods. And so the the target uh, it's it's less about the actual worship of false gods than it is about the the people who are leading you into that into that idolatry. The same thing is true of the family members. In in uh, the last case with the cities, it's uh, worthless men, verse 13, sons of Baliel is the phrase in the Hebrew. And um, just, a, just a note on that, I mean, again, they're, they're serving kind of a mediatorial function. So um, images would come under the second word. Um, temple would come under the second word because it's, an, it's a means for worshiping Yahweh. Uh, or for idolatry, uh, priesthood would come under the second word because it's a kind of mediator of uh, God's presence. And so in each case, you have a kind of priestly figure. But just a, just a, a note on verse 13 in the sons of Balliol phrase, um, there are some commentaries I looked at when I was studying this passage that suggest that sons of Balliol are kind of a rebellious underclass within the city. These are people who are rising up um, from below, their 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 uh, low stature, low low uh, economic and social class, and they're leading a rebellion. 
In fact, the, the phrase sons of Belial is used pretty commonly, not for that kind of rabble, but rather for people who are in positions of authority. Um, the, sons of, the sons of Eli are sons of Belial. So they're part of the established priesthood, and yet they are leading people in rebellion against God. They're actually rebelling against God themselves in the way they conduct the sacrifices. Uh, but uh, Samuel, the book of Samuel calls them sons of Belial. So I don't think that the phrase connotes any particular class. This kind of rebellion against Yahweh within a city could come as much from the establishment. In fact, the uh, the scenario seems to seems to uh, fit better if the sons of Belial are people who have some uh, some stature in the city. Uh, these sons of Belial are, are uh, going out from among the people. There's kind of Exodus language here. It's a it's kind of an inverted Exodus. They're leading them out from under Yahweh to serve other gods. There's a kind of reversal of the Exodus, and it would make more sense if that was led by people who have a high status in the town rather than people who are low. So if you have if you have local Levites who become enamored of false gods, you know that's the kind of scenario that at least it would fit here. It could be other other sorts of people, but that would fit here. Uh, the scenario very well. Just a quick note, that's exactly what happens in 1 Kings 21 when uh, uh, when Jezebel uh, sends letters in Ahab's name to seal uh, the man's death. Uh, remember this? And they are not, uh, they're worthless men, but they have some kind of standing and they're able to uh, stand up and basically accuse uh, the, uh, the man. Naboth. Uh, yeah, Naboth, right. And they wouldn't have been able to do that unless they had some standing. One thing I wonder about here is whether we should read um, this section as, as a sort of exposition of the rationale of the second commandment, which concerns jealousy and the um, solidarity of people in righteousness or wickedness. So the visiting of the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third or fourth generation of third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So these different examples all seem to relate to the actual practice of maintaining the holiness of the people in the face of the jealousy of the Lord, and also ensuring that unrighteous solidarities are um, cut off and avoided. And that and that emphasis on jealousy, which comes up in the second word, um, fits with what Jeff was saying earlier about the the kind of marital language that's used in this section. Jealousy is a is a is a marital term, and Yahweh's jealousy is roused when Israel, uh, his bride, turns her attention to some other husband. In this case, you have a prophet or a family member or sons of Belial in a city who are serving as kind of uh, infernal friends of an infernal bridegroom. I guess they're they're trying to. They're trying to mediate uh, a liturgical marriage, a marriage of worship with a different God. And uh, so yeah, the, the jealousy and the marital imagery go together. We can probably move on to chapter 14 if, uh, if we said everything we want to say about chapter 13. Uh, and uh, I just let me introduce uh, chapter 14 with a, a couple of structural issues. One structural issue comes right at the beginning of the chapter. The chapter begins with Yahweh's declaration, you are sons of Yahweh your God, or rather Moses' declaration, you are sons of Yahweh your God, and then rules about mourning practices, shaving between your eyes for the dead, or cutting yourselves for the dead. Uh, that's usually taken as the beginning of a new section uh, that uh, uh, the Lord has moved, or the Moses has moved rather from concern with the second word to the beginning of a concern for the third word. The second word has to do with images in 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 its most specific uh, in its most specific form, but then that uh, opens out to the kinds of things we've been talking about with uh, mediators and places and people who are mediating worship, priesthood, and so on. And chapter fourteen begins the third word, which is about bearing the holy name of Yahweh, uh, and you bear the holy name of Yahweh properly when you avoid these kinds of mourning practices, and then. As the chapter goes on, it's going to be mainly about uh, clean and unclean foods. Cal Carmichael has suggested, uh, on the contrary, that the beginning of chapter 14 actually should be appended to the end of chapter 13. So there's no chapter break, of course, in the original Hebrew Bible. And he suggests that the morning practices, which are not to do, uh, shave your head, cut yourselves for the dead of this city that's just been destroyed. You're not to show any pity for the city. 
and and you're not supposed to mourn over them. So he doesn't he takes it not as a as a general uh, as a general prohibition of these kind of mourning practices, but rather specifically mourning for uh, sons of Belial and cities who have followed sons of Belial. So uh, that's one reading of how this the two chapters fit together. The other reading is to say that chapter fourteen is the beginning of a new section, and I think there are reasons for seeing that. Uh, if you look at verse two, uh, there's a declaration: "You are a holy people to Yahweh your God." That is repeated in verse 21 at the end of the rules about foods, right toward the end of verse 21, you are a holy people to Yahweh your God, the same phrasing used. So verses 2 and 21 form an inclusio. Uh, that could mean the verse 1 goes with the previous chapter, but uh, you are sons of God and you are holy people seem to be linking up. So the the rules about uh, mourning practices and the rules about food seem to be linked by the status that Israel has as children of Yahweh, their father, and as a holy people treasured possession to him. So one way to one way to fudge that issue is to say, well, verse verse one is is a Janus verse. It's concluding the previous chapter, but it's also opening up this new concern. Um, that's that's a possible way to read it. I think that there are places in the in scripture we have uh, passages that serve that double structural function that that close out a previous section and also open up a new set of concerns in the following section. The other structural issue I wanted to highlight was the, uh, at the end of uh, end of this section, at the end of the food laws, uh, where we have, again, in verse 21, you'll be uh, holy people to Yahweh your God. And then verse 21 ends with, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. That law, which we'll look at in more detail in a bit, uh, that law has traditionally been taken as a food law. That's That's the basis for Jewish prohibition of eating meat and milk together. As stated, though, it's not stated as a food law, even though it's right next to a food law, a set of food laws. It's stated as a fall, uh, as, as a, uh, a law about preparation, preparation of food. Uh, but structurally, it seems to be outside of the section that begins in verse 2. Verse 2 has your holy people. Verse 21 has your holy people. And then you shall not boil a kid seems to be beginning a new section. And again, you can fudge that by saying, the kid law is both connected to the previous section and also opening a new section. It's possible. Other places where the kid law appears, it's not in connection with food laws. It's connection with tithing and fest- festivals. So um, by reference to those other contexts, it seems that uh, the kid law is more at home with the tithe law that ends chapter 14 than it is with what, what precedes it. A couple quick things about the food laws to orient us before we get started on the details. Israel is under food prohibitions. They're in a, in a kind of an Adamic state. Uh, they're going into the land, but when they go into the land, they're not supposed to eat certain things. Just as Adam was placed in the land, he was not supposed to eat certain things. Israel goes into the land and they're under pro, uh, a kind of probation. Uh, and then eventually, of course, uh, that probation is lifted. And in Christ, we are all, all foods are cleaned and we have we can eat everything. Everything is sanctified by thanksgiving. So uh, there's that that's that kind of a damic edenic context that's in the background. Now, the other thing that struck me is the fact that uh, the whole section of about food laws and maybe also including the rules about mourning practices, uh, those are framed by the demand to be a holy people. And I suspect that a lot of Christians would immediately think holiness is a matter of you know combating sin, combating our evil desires, combating the flesh that's within. We wouldn't immediately think, or wouldn't be inclined to think that that holiness has to do with care of the body. But in this passage, at least, that's that's what exactly what it has to do with. You are a holy people if you don't engage in these mourning practices. You are a holy people if you don't ingest unclean food, uh, and uh, if you if you put into your body only what uh, what the Lord has approved. If you don't touch things that have died of themselves, touch the carcasses of uh, of unclean animals. It's it's the way you use your body, the contact you have on the outside, and the things you take into your body. That's what that's the concern of holiness. That's not to say, of course, that the Lord is unconcerned about Israel's state of mind or state of heart. Uh, it's been clear from other passages that uh, that's a central concern of Deuteronomy: you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. But uh, holiness, we could put it put it uh, more softly: holiness at least includes care of the body and use of the body. Uh, in Deuteronomy, and it's not just an interior state. 
we find similar laws concerning marking for the dead and other things like that in Leviticus 21 in relationship to the priests in that context. Um, the cutting for the dead, pulling out hair in mourning, all of these things are contrary to the holy status of the people of God. And the division here, among other things, seems to be between a sharp division between death and life that I think is also borne out within the um, clean and unclean food regulation. That division between death and life needs to be maintained um, in the fact that they are a living people that has been freed by the Lord and giver of life, and they must avoid the sort of association with death that characterizes other people. That is particularly pronounced for the high priest and for other priests think about the situation of um, Aaron in the um, service of the Lord after the death of his two sons and the way in which he was to abstain from mourning in that context. It seems that this division is part of the rationale for the laws concerning the food, but I think there's a lot more that we'll be getting into that. Is there a basic kind of bottom line rationale here about avoiding Canaanite practices? I know that's has to be true with the self-cutting mentioned in the first uh yeah the first verse uh and also with regard to what they eat i mean you think about what an israelite can cook for lunch or dinner um and how that then sets them apart it's going to set them apart from uh, the culture that they're replacing but is this is that primarily is that what this is about holiness is is being separate is eating eating different even eating different animals than what uh, other cultures uh, will eat now that's, that, i mean that's really basic i mean that doesn't give us a rationale for why this animal or that animal but kind of overall tells us this is what it means to be holy i i think it's important uh to back to your structural question uh uh peter is <laughs> not that we have to maintain this uh this uh, uh this imposition, imposition, not that we have to maintain the, the 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 structure of the ten words, but if chapter fourteen is indeed just a continuation of chapter thirteen, then we don't have a third word because we move pretty much right into the fourth word, uh, at least with verse twenty-two and possibly with the end of verse twenty-one in chapter thirteen. So, and that, and the second thing I say is. Um, this makes sense if this is a third word, because if you're sons of Yahweh, your God, then you then you're going to bear that name. Uh, and that's what the third word is about. You shall not right. bear the name of Yahweh, your God, in an empty way. Uh, and I think that's often missed with people because the third word becomes just this this uh, commandment about uh, not speaking the name of Yahweh uh, in an inappropriate way. And that's that's a that's part of it. That's a very narrow interpretation. If, when, it's more like a military bearing when you wear a uniform. Right. Uh, the Israelites, in effect, wear the uniform of Yahweh. They're his sons. Uh, they have his name. And when they go out into the world, they have to behave in a certain way. Uh, and and one of the ways in which they behave is what they cook uh, and how they how they eat together. And that will set them apart as holy to Yahweh. Yeah, just to I, clarify what uh, what Muck, Muck, uh, Carmichael says, he doesn't say that the whole chapter is um, just a continuation of chapter thirteen. He's just saying that the mourning rites that are described in, in verse one are specifically prohibited for the uh, the people who have been destroyed in the rebellious city. And then I think he would see uh, verse two as beginning a new section. Okay. All right, that makes sense. But again, you're you're beginning verse one with sons of Yahweh, and you're ending in verse right. twenty-one with it. It's sure, it's a much better inclusio if you include it all together. I think the connection between the third commandment and the dietary requirements is particularly clear in Leviticus twenty. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. 
that connection, I think, highlights why this would come under the third law. I think also the separation between life and death is an important one for understanding the rationale of the laws concerning food, but also the two flanking commandments, the ones concerning cutting for the dead and the one at the end about boiling the young goat. But I would be more inclined to connect with this earlier material, that separation between life and death makes Israel a people defined by life. And in a pagan society prior to um, the event of the resurrection, people lived in the thrall of death, under the fear and power of death, and the, the grave was a fixation for pagan societies. And to be a society defined by life and the living God um, was one of the things that more than anything else would set Israel apart, that they would refrain from the sort of mourning practices, that they would refrain from the sort of eating practices, that they would refrain from the sort of um, fixation upon death that characterized their neighbors would set them apart in a very profound theological way and say something about the character of the Lord that I think is most clearly um, worked out in the fact of Christ's resurrection. A couple things uh, back to that. One, uh, one uh, back to Jeff's original question about whether this is about separation from Canaanite practices. I think that's that's definitely the effect. Is that is that the primary intent? I have a harder time saying that, but it's definitely the effect because you have. I mean, we got examples. For example, I guess the chief one is in the scene of First uh, First Kings eighteen with uh, Elijah against the prophets of Baal at uh, Mount Carmel, and they're all gashing themselves. It's not mourning, but they're all gashing themselves in order to gain attention from Baal, in order to provoke a reaction from Baal. It's kind of self-sacrifice that uh, that would, that would uh, I guess, elicit Baal's compassion for them. Their blood is the, is the blood that brings Baal near, and he'll send fire from heaven. Uh, Jeremiah 16 talks about similar practices of gashing, as a, as a practice of mourning for the dead, um, so I think that's I, I think that's definitely an effect of it, whether that's the intention or not. I guess the the question I have for for Alistair is, uh, what's they're they're not prohibited from all mourning practices, and, and in fact, I, the, especially the cutting the hair that seems to be part of. I mean, I, I think that's what Elisha does after Elijah leaves. He's uh, when people when when the when the forty two uh, young men mock him for being bald uh, because his head has been removed. That's the phrase that's used throughout the chapter. I think what's happened is that he's um, he his father has gone and he's shaved his head in in mourning. Um, so there's it's specific practices that are per- forbidden. It seems like you're separating life and death. Then it would be. Uh, I, I just I'm not sure I'm not sure how that rationale fits with the sp- specificity of these prohibitions. I'm not sure how um, permission of any mourning practices would be consistent with the the, the separation of life and death that you're describing. I, I guess I'm just not clear what how you think that's working, Alistair. Yeah, so I think um, Leviticus 21 and elsewhere have that contrast between life and death and the separation from a culture of mourning where there are certain exceptions allowed, but for the priests, for instance, they shall not make themselves unclean for the for the dead, save for the very closest relative. And the um, mourning practices that are marked out upon the body, those are denied them. And then also they are not able to let their hair hang loose, tear their clothes, go into any dead bodies um, or make themselves unclean or the the high priest to make himself unclean, even for his very father or mother. So within the broader practice of Israel, there's this intensification of laws of separation of life and death for the priesthood. And I think more generally among the people, there's this division of life and death that allows for greater exceptions among the general populace and is more restrictive when you come to the priests and high priests. But the fundamental division I think is one that is um, upheld, and the 
importance of avoiding the the worship of the Lord becoming a place and a context associated with practices of um, death and the um, God as the Lord of the dead um, rather than the the God of the living. Um, You can imagine how that could have developed, as we see in many societies, a, a sort of fixation upon the grave, upon death and understanding of God in terms of those themes. Um, Certainly within pagan societies, that's a common development. And so the division most pronounced for the high priest, pronounced also for the priests more generally, and then also applying in lesser ways to the rest of the population, established that fundamental division between life and death, which even when you were mourning, it was something that cut you off from the presence of the Lord, because the Lord is the God of the living. I think that works as a as a background issue with the food laws, particularly in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus, uh, the the food laws come in Leviticus eleven, at the beginning of a, a long section that's dealing with laws of uncleanness. So you have um, unclean foods. You have women uh, unclean after childbirth. You have skin disease. Two long chapters on skin disease. Then chapter fifteen, you have laws of uh, 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 rules of uncleanness. That have to do with bodily emissions, genital emissions, uh, a woman's menstruation, and male genital emissions both render you unclean, and even even marital sex renders you unclean because there's a genital emission. So uh, I, I I agree that there's kind of a life and death is is in the is a is an underlying issue in all of those. So um, a loss of life is partly what's at stake in all of those. I think that uh, Jordan's work on the laws of uncleanness in in Leviticus I think work here in Deuteronomy too and he's that it's not as clear contextually but uh, he connects that section of Leviticus verse uh, chapters 11 through 15 uh, with the curses of Genesis 3 so in the first 10 chapters of Leviticus you have an you have a a, a garden system set up sacrificial system set up that's like a new garden uh, Aaron and his sons are uh, ordained in order to be, in order to be priests in this new garden, and immediately there's a fall when Nadab and Abihu bring strange fire before the Lord. That's in Leviticus 10, and then you have this series of judgments, uh, which uh, are expansions on and variations on the judgments or the curses that are found in Genesis 3. And the the predominant curse, as you point out, Alistair, the predominant curse is the curse of death. In the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Uh, and the various forms of uncleanness are forms of symbolic death, ceremonial death, however you want to describe that. Uh, and that includes um, the food laws. If you ingest these kind of unclean foods, then you have uh, then you're you're bearing death, and you can't come into the presence of God bearing death. I was going to say something similar about uh, uncleanness, Peter. That um, people come to these passages and they think it's talking about either health or it's some kind of moral judgment against these animals. Uh, But it's clearly, these are ritual categories here. Uh, Clean and unclean refer to uh, nearness to God. Unclean means you're separated from him, you're apart from him. So think of the one who has a skin plague or a leprosy. Uh, He's uh, not able to come into the presence of God with the rest of God's people. So he's, he's, he's at a distance. He's been exiled. So these are animals that you can't cook. You can't eat uh, because they're associated with death. And in terms of their behavior uh, and, you know, they come into contact with the dust, which mediates the curse, or they themselves eat dead things like the birds here in verse 11 and following that are, list is unclean most of them are scavengers and carrion uh birds um and so there's that there's also this in verse eight about the pig oh and or actually about all of the animals listed before this their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch there's echoes of genesis 3 there as well what the woman said about the food which god uh, told them not to eat and she she, I think, rightly concludes that they shouldn't touch 
them either. I think that's also going on in Leviticus as well. Yeah, that's um, it's worth it's worth thinking about that uh, specifically. What's being prohibited there? I think it's important to, to make the point you made that it's not about it's not about sin. It's not a moral issue. It's a ceremonial issue. So you don't, don't touch the car- carcass of any animal that's unclean. Anything that dies of itself. What if a mouse uh, dies in your hut? Can you remove it? Can you pick it up and remove it, or would you have to have some kind of implement to remove it? What if your donkey dies? Um, that's an unclean animal, and if if it kills over and dies, uh, what are you supposed to do to get rid of it? People are going to have contact with things that are dead all the time. Well, I mean, not all the time, but occasionally. If you're living in an agrarian society, you're going to have contact, uh, uh, physical, tangible, tactile contact with dead things, and what that does is put you in the state of uncleanness. Uh, which means you have to go through a rite of purification, but it's not, you haven't sinned. It's not like you, you just, sorry, I just got to leave the dead donkey out there in the yard because I'm not allowed to touch him. Well, of course you drag him away. You, you, you've got to touch him, get him out of the way, but that's not a sin. Uh, what would be the sin is if you go through that, uh, go through that, if you, if you make that contact and then don't go through the ritual that's required in order to become clean, which are given in Leviticus. So it's it's not a moral issue; it's a ceremonial issue, and and really comes and in, comes into force only when Israelites are going to the central sanctuary. If you're if you're in a state of uncleanness in daily life, you're just in a state of uncleanness. And uh, for example, the rules about menstruation that assumes that the woman stays in the house and she's just making the seat she sits in and the bed she lies in, she's making those unclean, and she's probably making her husband unclean, and her her children are unclean. For the time that she's in that in that state, and then at the end of it, they all go through rituals of purification, and they're fine. The issue is not moral, and it's not about uh, exclusion from daily life. It's about exclusion from the sanctuary. Uh, and there, I think Alistair's point again: bearing death into the Lord's house—that's what's being prohibited. And if you have had contact with a carcass and you haven't gone through the purification rite, and then go into the tabernacle, that's the kind of uh, potent volatile mixture of life and death that brings that brings danger. Could we say also that these ritual prohibitions about animals are designed for the Israelites to reflect on what they might mean uh, about their relationship with other people? It seems like uh, Israel being taught by animals, like Adam is taught by animals in Genesis 2, that he needs a, a helper suitable to him. And then also, uh, giving in to the animal in Genesis 3. And then uh, all this about animals and animals uh, who, that are clean, animals that are sacrificial, the whole book of Leviticus, then the Proverbs, you know, learning from animals. Um, it, it seems like this would also be something that as the Israelite meditated on these things, it would learn something about how they were to behave in, in God's world. Um, whether, you know, whether it's the, the domesticity, I'm not saying that right, whether the, where whether you're learning about the domestic kind of way in which certain animals relate to one another, well, that's the way we should do it, uh, not, not feeding on death, as Alistair mentioned earlier, so that there's this reminder to Israel, not just of their status as holy people, but also how they're supposed to live. It's a call to holiness in terms of their personal and their social life as well, in some sense, Um, which is exactly how, uh, when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers uh, tend to interpret these things, you know, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Paul says, do you think God is really concerned with oxen? No, it's about people. It's about uh, giving the worker what is his due, appropriate amount of of wages, Um, things like that. Is that you think that's going on here as well? This uh, uh, this call by God to for them to meditate on why they aren't doing these things, why they aren't eating these particular animals, why these animals are prohibited. Oh yeah, I think that's I think that's an important part of the part of the scenario. It's a separation from the surrounding practices, so they they are visibly distinguished by their dietary habits. Cultures are distinguished by dietary habits, and, and Israel has its own kind of cultural, uh, fun, its own kind of cultural form. 
but yeah, the specific things that are pro- prohibited, specific reasons why they're prohibited, I think highlight that. And it goes back, I think it does go back to Genesis 3, as you said, the serpent is in the dust uh, and animals that have contact with the dust, uh, land animals that have contact with the dust are the ones that are prohibited. So if you have a, animals that have a pad on their foot um, that makes direct contact with the dust, that's prohibited. But if they have hoofs on their feet, as Jim Jordan says, they have shoes on their feet that uh, separate them from the dust, then that uh, that's a, that's an anti-serpent kind of animal, and you can ingest that. And that is, that is there's a kind of teaching aspect to that. Uh, I think the, the traditional idea that the chewing the cud is a kind of rumination is a, uh, a symbol of meditation. I mean, we use that, we use that term uh, in English. Uh, I'm ruminating on that. Uh, you're, even when we're not actually chewing on things, we're chewing on ideas or we're chewing on thoughts, but we're ruminating. Uh, so that, that um, uh, that's, I think, is at least part of the symbolism of the cud. So, yeah, I think these are representative animals. Just a, just a quick note on Mary Douglas in a famous book, uh, Purity and Danger, talks about this passage. She she was a British anthropologist, died a number of years ago, but uh, wrote a good bit on Leviticus. Uh, and her theory was that each uh, there's th- this whole this whole section is organized in the kind of a cosmology. There's land animals, there's animals in the water, there's animals in the air, uh, and each of these zones has an ideal uh, form of animal. And any deviation from that ideal form uh, is disorderly and unclean. So uh, what what's happening in is main, kind of a maintenance of social boundaries, maintenance of personal boundaries, uh, and and exhibiting the kind of uh, ideal behavior that uh, is associated with different kinds of animals. I I think that that's right, but it's still too general. And I think you have to look at the specifics with the the hoofs and the and the chewing the cud. That's what that's what distinguishes land animals. And I think it does have to do with kind of moral instruction that those animals provide. I think we should also bear in mind the ways in which the sacrificial system maps Israel onto the animal kingdom. And so you have five key sacrificial um, creatures, the oxen, goats, sheep, doves, and pigeons. And they're a subset of the clean animals that we have here. And we never have fish on the altar, for instance. And then you also have, as uh, you mentioned earlier, the the serpent as the the sort of archetypal unclean creature. Um, we can maybe think also about chewing the cud as the inverse of what the serpent does, which is swallow its food whole. Um, and then the degree of contact with the cursed earth you might also think about the animals without fins and scales are often uh, tend to be closer to the serpent in their form as well. Think about eels, for instance. Um, And then the carrion birds or birds of prey um, are also related to division from dead carcasses um, within various um, Jewish um, regulations. There's the statement that you can tell forbidden animals by their teeth, the fact that they have canines. because the forbidden creatures are typically carnivores, predators, carrion creatures, whereas animals that chew the cud and have split hooves are animals that um, are um, they're herbivores for the most part. There's this division from the world of predation of um, carnivorous creatures and carrion, and that division between death and life is also then upheld by um, these regulations. And then the significance of the fact that it's related to the serpent as the archetypal unclean creature, I think, is borne out in Leviticus 11, where you have the pattern of the judgments in Exodus, in Genesis chapter 3 played out following the fall that occurs with the death of Nadab and Abihu. There's the um, law concerning clean and unclean animals in chapter 11. In chapter 12, there's the law of childbirth in chapter 13 and 14, skin disease relating to the curse upon the man, and then the laws of the uncleanness of the flesh and things coming forth from the flesh in chapter 15, and then dealing with the threat of expulsion in chapter 16 with the day of coverings. So the logic, I think, here is very similar to the one that we find in Leviticus, which strengthens the 
connections that we're noticing at this point. Yeah, the the uh, the water animals, as you said, are uh, distinguished by having fins and scales versus nine through 10, neat little chiastically arranged couple of verses. You may eat anything that has fins and scales, anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat. And then the concluding statement, it is unclean for you. Um, but yeah, fins and scales, uh, similar to the effect of having hoofs, you have hoofs that uh, separate the foot from the uh, from the from the dust. Scales are kind of armor. It's the same term that's used for the scale armor, for example, of Goliath. Scales on a fish separate it from the surroundings and distinguish it from the surroundings. And then fins would suggest a kind of locomotion. Um, you know, uh, be able to uh, capacity to to move deliberately and. Uh, in kind of straight lines. I think it, behind this, I haven't figured figured out how this works entirely, but I think behind this is the Genesis 1 description of the animal world. Uh, we're, we have an allusion to that in the three, three zones. Uh, there are behemoth on the land. There are swimming things in the water. There are flying things across the firmament. Those are the same three categories that you have in Genesis 1. And in Genesis one, they're all related to their environment. Uh, it doesn't matter that the um, uh, that a bat, for example, is a mammal by our classification. It's it's a it's a it's a flying thing, and therefore it's a bird by the classification that's given in Genesis, and which is reflected here in Deuteronomy fourteen. But it seems like the different uh, the clean animals are the animals that are within an environment. Uh, and defined by the environment, but like Israel, are also separated from that environment. So the land animals obviously are on land, and they're in the dust, they're on the dust, and yet they're separated from the dust. The the water is, and the 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 teeming life of the water is a, is a symbol of the the nations. So you have um, a fish in the water that has scales, is like a a person among the Gentiles who is among the Gentiles in that environment and yet has protectiveness, some kind of protection that, that distinguishes him from the environment, that uh, separates him off from the environment. So uh, that, that goes back to Jess's comment about these, um, these different rules having a teaching significance. They teach Israel what kind of life they are to live. Keeping the rules themselves is itself as a way of separating because they have a different diet, but then the rules also symbolize the separation that they're supposed to have at least the land animals and the water animals the the birds are always an anomaly because there's no rules given it's just a list of unclean animals so the, verse 21 concludes with uh, you shall not eat anything which dies of itself if you kill it and slaughter it then of course you can touch it and you can eat and you can eat it something you can't eat roadkill uh, that's what's being said in verse 21 um, but Importantly, you can give it to an alien who's in your town. You can sell it to a foreigner. Uh, that's that sounds like kind of hard dealing. If you think of these as moral requirements, so it's like Israelites are going to protect themselves from sinning because uh, it would be a sin for them to eat something that dies of itself. Uh, but it doesn't matter if they give this food to the alien or the foreigner because uh, it's okay if they sin. They they can they can uh, encourage their neighbors their uh, the Gentile neighbors to sin as long as they don't sin. Uh, I don't think that's what's going on. I think um, Israel is distinguished even from those within their own land. Um, aliens are residents of the land uh, who are not circumcised, who are not part of Israel. Foreigners are people passing through the land uh, who are not residents, but are have some kind of maybe commercial interaction with Israelites they're not under these laws. They're not separated in the way Israel is in their diet. Uh, of course, that's that's going to be a huge issue once we get to the New Testament and those uh, those uh, dietary differences begin to break down with the with the coming of Christ. But in the Old Testament, it's perfectly legitimate for an Israelite to say, "I can't eat this. Here, you take it and give it to an alien." The, the, the highlighting of the alien is important here, I think, because aliens are one of the prototypical, one of the uh, archetypal objects of charity in Israel. You have aliens, you have orphans, widows, Levites, who are provided for from the from the tithes, who are provided for from Israel's offerings. So giving roadkill to an alien could be an act of charity. That's one of the ways that you support the alien. 
uh, it's not it, it's not causing him to sin. It's just giving him something that you yourself can't eat. So you have an interesting combination. I think it was Richard Nelson's commentary that makes this point. You have an interesting combination of these hard lines of separation in terms of diet, but verse twenty one opens it out. This even even within these hard lines of separation, there are there are provisions for charity and provisions for caring for those who are in need, so that the alien in your gates. Uh, even though you can't eat something yourself because you're separated, the alien your gates can be the the uh, proper recipient of those of that food. Um, so you have this uh, combination of Israel both being separated uh, and being generous to those who are around them. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.